A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Last week, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, or Lula, won presidential elections in Brazil. Lula will be one of several left-leaning leaders that have come to power in Latin America over the past few years. Today, we're going to look at what Lula's election means for Brazil, what this new crop of leftist leaders means for the continent, and whether they can reinvigorate efforts to end the region's crises, especially the political standoff in Venezuela. I'm here to govern this country in a very difficult situation. But I have faith in God that with the help of the people, we will find a way out so that this country may live again democratically, harmoniously. That was Lula's winning speech, in which he also pledged to govern for all Brazilians. This will be the second time Lula's held power. He had two terms in office between 2003 and 2012, and despite corruption scandals, lifted millions of Brazilians out of poverty, left office as a popular president. This time around, though, he only just squeaked through, narrowly defeating his rival, Jair Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro's a right-wing populist that, in the build-up to the election, had claimed it would be rigged. After the vote, his supporters took to the streets. Tonight, anger boiling in Brazil, a symptom of a contentious presidential election. Current President Jair Bolsonaro's supporters unwilling to accept his narrow but decisive defeat. Lula's one of several left-wing leaders now in power across Latin America. Gustavo Petro just won elections in Colombia. He's promising a radical break, saying that he'll adopt redistributive policies around land and talk to remaining guerrilla groups and even drug traffickers to bring peace to Colombia's violence-torn countryside. In Chile, you have Gabriel Boric, a young former student leader, and in Mexico, Andrés Manuel López Obrador or AMLO. These are all very different leaders, but for the most part, they seem a more pragmatic bunch than the authoritarian left that holds power in Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba. So what will Lula back in power mean for Brazil? How much of a force does Bolsonaro remain? What does this wave of leftist leaders mean for the region? Will it endure or will right-wing populists instead bounce back? So to talk about all this, I am extremely happy to welcome on again 
to the podcast, Ivan Briscoe and Renata Segura, Crisis Group's Latin America Director and Deputy Director. Ivan, Renata, welcome back on. Thank you so much, Richard, for having us. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start then with Brazil and we'll come to Lula in a moment. But first, Jair Bolsonaro is the outgoing president. If you're looking at him from outside Brazil, I guess most of our listeners will associate Bolsonaro with the destruction of the Amazon. His sort of hapless response to COVID, his generally brash, often crude language, harking back sympathetically to the military dictatorship. But in Brazil, he's won the votes of almost half of Brazilians. So he remains extremely popular, at least among part of Brazilian society. So where does his appeal lie? It's not just the half of the Brazilians that he, he nearly won in the election on Sunday, Richard. It's also the political power that his movement has accumulated in the first round and second round of the polls. His party is now the largest party in both houses of Congress. He has a large number of state governors, including the governorship of the largest province of Brazil, Sao Paulo, which has got close to 50 million inhabitants. That's at the size of a, quite a large European country. He has obviously got the dedicated support of these tens of thousands of protesters who have come on the, on the streets. So, so where does this come from? There is obviously, without doubt, a deep conservative groundswell in Brazilian society, which has occurred over the last 10 or 15 years, which Bolsonaro has extremely effectively captured and massaged through communications apparatus, which he has created as a political movement and which has been supported by the evangelical church. In fact, evangelical Christianity has got a lot to do with the rise of this conservative movement. Remember that Brazil now has one of the largest evangelical Christian populations of any Latin American country. We're talking over 30%. It could be rising to 40% in the next few years. And this is intimately tied to a belief in the, the importance of the family, of traditional values, opposition to gay rights, opposition to changes in the way men and women see one another. Now, many in the West might look at this with a degree of suspicion, but within Brazil, this is a very dominant feature of society. Not everybody believes this, of course, and clearly Lula's victory would suggest that a slight majority is in favour of a more modern approach to social values. But there's no doubt that this these more traditionalist values remain extremely popular in Brazil. And combine that lastly, I think, Richard, with the discredit which uh, Lula and the Workers' Party government fell under uh, as a result of the extremely large corruption cases which uh, which consumed them from about 2014, the famous car wash scandal, and then the Odebrecht scandal, and all the misuse of government power, government kickbacks, paying off politicians, uh, paying off other governments in Latin America to get contracts. All this, which in some ways uh, is traditional in, in, in Brazilian politics and business, but was exposed so clearly in those years and brought the whole political system into a large amount of disrepute and particularly focused on Lula. This not just turned people away from the Workers' Party government, but was again captured by Bolsonaro. He was able to channel that uh, disgust with corruption towards the right. So I think those two factors have obviously played a role. And we see the protesters nowadays on the streets appalled in their opinion that Brazil is going to go back 
to the, the dominance of what they regard as a corrupt class of politicians and embrace a set of morality which they believe in somehow is uh, profoundly offensive. Two small things. There is a growing gun rights movement in Brazil, which is fairly large and is gaining more and more strength. And Bolsonaro was able to capture those people that think that being um, armed is a right that they have. And I think also a little bit of nostalgia for what some in the more social conservative sectors have for the dictatorship. And um, that might be troublesome for some of us that dictatorships are coming back as these imaginary great old times. But a lot of Brazilians feel that the military junta regime was really a time of progress and advancement. It's interesting that in the protests that have occurred since the election results were announced, really what they're calling for is an intervention of the army. It's a very specific call for the military to step in. We'll come to the, the army and the role of the military in a moment. But just before then, I mean, isn't the the corruption scandals that dogged Lula and that Bolsonaro has sort of portrayed as something associated with Lula's Workers' Party I mean, you know, as you say, Ivan, this is associated with the way Brazilian politics has been done for a long time. It's a bit of a sleight of hand to pin all that on one side of the Brazilian political spectrum. Hasn't Bolsonaro's government also been plagued by corruption allegations and, and cronyism and all the familiar problems? Well, of course it has. But this is one of the interesting aspects of the use of corruption in Latin America, whereby Bolsonaro's supporters don't see him as corrupt, despite the fact that he's allegedly bought a large number of properties with cash, allegedly has informal links to some of the militia working in Rio de Janeiro, has engaged, his family at least engaged in dirty transactions as politicians. For them, that is secondary to all the other values he represents. So the corruption is, in a sense, possible, excusable, or simply dismissed as as a lie, given the, the, the extremity of the political polarisation. It's just one more bit of mud being thrown. And this is interesting as well from the left, that when there was a certain recognition in the left, there had to be, that corruption was was engaged in in the, the height of the years of the, the Workers' Party and, and Brazilian one's economy was growing and the big Brazilian companies and mining companies and production and construction companies were expanding across the region and the world. There was a sense as well that, well, corruption to win votes in Congress, to, to build political coalitions, is something which has to be done for the, the, the bigger causes which are addressing poverty and hunger in Brazil. So I think on both sides in Brazil, there's a sense that corruption is a means to an end and your own supporters are willing to, to forgive it. I will say one more thing about Bolsonaro. In the whole Lava Jato and Odebrecht scandals, there were a huge number of politicians clearly paid off so that they would join the, the government side in voting for important legislation in Congress. Bolsonaro was not actually among them. Why was he not among them? Because he wasn't regarded as a significant political player in Congress. He was marginal, which, of course, has what become his major attraction. The fact that he was not directly one of the recipients of kickbacks and corruption payments has redounded hugely to his political benefit. And so the other thing that Bolsonaro did was ahead of the elections, he seemed to be preparing the ground to challenge the results, casting a lot of aspersions over the vote's integrity. Now, in the end, though, although he didn't concede explicitly, he did sort of make an implicit concession. He didn't call on his supporters to come out onto the streets. 
think he's even said that protests should be peaceful. So what do you think was going on behind the scenes to push him in that direction rather than sort of being more confrontational, rather than challenging results, which it looked like he had been positioning himself to do? I think there's no doubt that for the last few months, this has been a top priority for European and Latin and and the United States, European countries and the United States with regard to Brazil. They've been very aware of the risk that Bolsonaro would try and dispute the election result if he lost and possibly try to seize power unconstitutionally. Why has this been such a fear? Because Bolsonaro has simply been going on about the risk of election fraud for so very long, disputing the, the validity of the electronic voting system in Brazil. And obviously that his family, his sons have, have looked to what Donald Trump did at the start of 2021 and said that that was actually a perfectly reasonable uh, thing to do. So the fear has been there, but there's been a lot of pressure from the international community. The United States has made very clear that it would, uh, it would recognize the victor as declared by the election, uh, election authorities. It has warned senior members of the Brazilian government and the Brazilian military of the risks of trying to dispute a vote. This has been the same with European and to a degree Latin American countries. There was a very fast recognition from across the region, the US and Europe. But I think there was another element which helped Bolsonaro, persuaded Bolsonaro. He obviously didn't like the result. He was very unwilling to go. I mean, he was in absolute silence for 48 hours. But there was a very important factor which persuaded him, which was he has presided over the the consolidation of a very powerful political movement in Brazil. Tarcicio de Freitas, the new governor of Sao Paulo, a hugely powerful role in Brazilian politics. He didn't want to see his new position endangered by Bolsonaro trying to upset the apple cart. And he made very clear that he believed that the election result is sovereign and Bolsonaro would have to respect that. So I think he had voices within his own political movement saying, enough, you've done well, say goodbye, you can come back into power in four years time, or at least try. We have a very powerful movement here. Your job is done. And what do you make of the sort of role of the military and the security forces? On the one hand, Bolsonaro has made his own support for the military, a sort of plank of his platform. Yet, so the military top brass seem quite keen to sort of stay out of politics. And yet, on the other hand, there were these reports of police blocking roads in Lula supporting areas, potentially aiming to diminish turnout in those areas. How would you assess what happened? Well, I think that the military themselves are, are fairly divided um, in this in this sense. And I think Bolsonaro did have a good amount of support. And clearly, for example, the federal police, uh, the federal transit police did all these roadblocks that might have affected people's ability to get to the polls. But I think what we're seeing is the strength of the institutional capacity of Brazil. And this is something that when we were talking with people in preparation for our reports on Brazil in the last year, there was the part of the military that was very loyal to Bolsonaro as an individual and that was willing to go outside of the framework of the law to support him. But there was that other part Brazil, which is, you know, by far the biggest and most uh, important um, democracy in South America, and the understanding, the acknowledgement that a move outside of the rules of the game uh, would have incredible impact, both for Brazil, but also for the region. If I could just add to that, I mean, Lula's relationship with the military is not bad at all either. As, as you know, Lula's former senior ministers have pointed out, he bought armaments, 
planes, invested in all sorts of equipment, gave the Brazilian military a huge fillet on the international stage by uh, making them effectively in charge of the policing operation in the UN mission in Haiti. And he reached out to the military before the polls as well. He, he built a very broad coalition. This was not a narrow left-wing movement, which Lula led. And part of that was obviously reaching out to the military and assuring them that their interests as an institution would not be threatened in his government. We'll come to Lula in a moment. Just before we do that, both of you mentioned earlier the Bolsonaro supporters on the streets, particularly in some of the bigger cities at the south, furious at Lula's win. This has been a sort of characteristic of the campaign, this anger at Lula and this sort of implicit or explicit threats of violence against him and his supporters, which is sort of new to, to at least in recent decades, to Brazilian politics. How much has Bolsonaro sort of uncorked something that's going to be very difficult to put back? I would suggest that there is a conservative groundswell which pre-exists to a degree before Bolsonaro. He has whipped it up. He has used very extensive campaign of communication and disinformation. There have been some studies done recently, for example, that six out of 10 bits of news about the electoral process in Brazil distributed by social media or by private social media channels like WhatsApp have been false. This is extraordinary. So he has created a heavily polarized environment in which fundamentally uh, his supporters have come to see the opposition, Lula, as a threat to everything which they hold dear. And, and you might say that in a choice between heaven and hell, democratic practice doesn't matter very much. If they believe that they're defending Brazil against a satanic figure, as he's identified by some of them, that they will take every measure they can. Can this movement be controlled, calmed? I think Lula will do his best to uh, to placate the, the 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 evangelical community, make sure that he doesn't offend them unnecessarily in any way, recognize their interests. Obviously, Bolsonaro is not going away, nor is his movement. And the attacks on Lula's management of Lula's future government will be fairly intense. But it will not probably be unlike the relationship between the, the current U.S. government and the Trumpist base in the United States at the moment. And Richard, when Ivan says that Lula is seen as a satanic figure, he actually literally means a satanic figure. The vice president uh, of Bolsonaro during a campaign uh, um, rally or uh, during a debate said that Lula had literally signed a pact with the devil. And, and Lula had to come out with a statement in which he says, I have not nor will I sign a, a pact with the devil. So, um, it, the, he actually did, he actually denied it explicitly. He, he denied, denied the pact he, with the exactly. devil. Exactly. He affirmed that he was a, a Christian and that he had, um, not signed a pact with the devil, which I'm sure a lot of politicians are wondering if this pact can be signed and where to go. But it is pretty interesting that he actually had to seriously come out and say that. Renata, last time you were on, we talked about uh, Rudolfo Hernandez in uh, Colombia, the TikTok king who people call Colombia's Trump. And you actually talked about some of the differences between Hernandez and, uh, and, and Donald Trump. But Bo Bolsonaro and the parallels are striking, right? I mean, the way that the sort of disinformation, the election denial, the way he's stoked up the base, the incompetence around COVID, the guns. Is that a fair comparison? It is a fair comparison, but not only that. I think that Brazil, uh, Bolsonaro and his people have been looking at Trump as a guidebook on how to behave 
because they see that Trump may have ended up losing the presidency, but came out extremely strong and it's a likely contender for the next elections. So, um, I don't think the, the, the commonalities are just a casualty is that it's exactly an intended looking at the playbook that Trump has used. Uh, there's communication between both campaigns. Um, it's, it's not in any way, um, just something that happened by chance. And so Lula, although he only squeaked through in the end, what won, won by a couple of percent, he is still quite an amazing comeback for him. But he's coming to office in a very different context to when he won the elections 2002, came to office 2003. As you said, Ivan Bolsonaro's Liberal Party has a big block in Congress, a lot of state governors, which presumably are going to want to if indeed Bolsonaro is taking his cue from Trump and the Republicans, presumably going to obstruct a lot of what Lula wants to do. Plus, you've got the commodities crisis you know, provoked partly by, by the pandemic, partly by the, the war in Ukraine, time of sort of scarcity for public spending. I mean, you said, Ivan, that, that Lula had built a sort of broad, broad camp, a big co governing coalition. But mm. any signs about how he's sort of going to manage some very adverse headwinds? Well, it's interesting. When he came to power, actually, at the start of 2003, Brazil was facing a pretty difficult economic situation. The Argentine debt crisis had just occurred. There were lots of question marks about the Latin American economy. So as a whole, we're in a very bad state. Poverty was high. He'd, he'd written a letter assuring the International Monetary Fund that he would adopt sort of conventional, orthodox, macroeconomic strategy which he did. And then the commodity boom set in and, uh, and Brazil soared. And that is, is possibly could happen again. You have seen commodities go up in price recently, but there's no guarantee that it will be done in a sustained fashion. And the economic predictions at the moment are fairly sobering for Brazil and the region. And Brazil has really just flatlined for much of, of the last decade. And it's, of course, this this economic stasis which underlies much of the movement towards Bolsonaro as well. Lula and other leaders in Latin America elevated this huge new middle class. The estimates from the, the World Bank 10 years ago were of 50 million new members of, of, of the middle class. But of course, once they got to the middle class, they found that conditions were not as inviting as they thought. The public services weren't of the quality that they were looking for, that they had to keep on uh, looking to private services and education and health, which were expensive, and stretch their budgets. So all of these sort of generate the new middle class discontent, which all politicians in the region have been dipping into. So what's Lula going to do differently now? Well, he has set out a plan for restoring a strong development path for Brazil. I mean, this is going back in many ways to the, the fundaments of the Workers' Party ideology to rebuild uh, Brazilian uh, industry, to, to create good jobs with, with high value added and not depend so much on the, the huge agro-industry, which has grown massively over the last 10, 15 years and now accounts for a growing part of the Brazilian economy. So this, I think, will be Lula's strategy. He will know that it's those lower middle classes, the new middle classes, those who are vulnerable, very vulnerable to every dip in the economy, who who will be absolutely crucial to his longevity and, and, and in power and the stability of his government. 
It is uh, very significant that Lula's vice president, who is uh, Geraldo Alkim, which is quite a, bi a well-known centrist, very business-friendly, very heterodox in his economic policies, that was clearly a sign that Brazil was now going to go into a crazy spiral for the international markets and the, and the investors. So I think it's very likely that Bolsa Familia is going to come back as a core program. This is the massive social spending program that lifted what millions of people out of poverty during Lula's first tenure. Exactly. But the likelihood is that because the economic conditions are so different, if he does make that giant investment in Bolsa Familia, which we're expecting, then he will have a little bit less wiggle room in other things. But it's, it's clear that that redistribution effort from his first time in power uh, will be center um, again, especially given that we have a serious economic crisis right now and that COVID brought a lot of those families that he had raised into the middle class back into poverty. And what about uh, Lula's foreign policy? So first time around, he had Celso Amorim, a uh, very well-known, articulate foreign minister, the BRICS this block, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa at the time was a was a big thing. Brazil very involved in that. Obviously, the nature of the BRICS has changed quite a bit since then. But beyond the BRICS, Lula also established many embassies across Africa, across other parts of the global south. Quite an activist foreign policy, as you say, deployed Brazilian peacekeepers to lead the UN mission in Haiti. So should we see Lula's return as a return of Brazil to the world stage? helped along by the fact that Brazil is not going to be destroying the Amazon. I mean, is that is a repeat of that sort of more activist foreign policy likely? Or given all the problems at home, is he going to focus mostly on, on domestic politics? I think once we know who the next foreign minister is, and Celso Amorim is there about in the running, uh, and, and will have influence over the eventual choice, no doubt, there will be a serious move by Brazil to strengthen its position on the foreign policy stage. Brazil has an extremely talented, capable group of diplomats that have effectively been put up in a box in the last few years of Bolsonaro. It's not just the Amazon. It was the choice of the initial foreign minister, Ernesto Araujo, who is a radical anti-globalist who believed that there, there should be a coalition uh, built around the Christian order. In, in the world to, to def defend, uh, you know, fundamental moral values against the, the, the communists and the left. Uh, this sort of thinking was terrible for the ability of Brazilian diplomats to engage. Now, I think an important part of this, this return to an active Brazilian diplomacy is going to be in Latin America itself. Latin American regional institutions have fallen apart in the last few years. And the absence of Brazil as a bulwark of these uh, of these institutions uh, having actually helped create uh, some of them in the first Lula governments, it has been widely noted. With regard to working on a possible solution in settlement in Venezuela, addressing once again the recurrent crises in Haiti, which is now probably worse than ever, um, dealing with all the challenges relating to you know, regional infrastructure, cooperation on climate change, cooperation on rebuilding the inter-American human rights system, all these sorts of things, Brazil could play a major role. And also, of course, globally. And But I think when it comes to the global role, you will see a certain continuity between Bolsonaro and Lula. And this is something which 
it's, you know, it's, it's, it's notable that both the Bolsonaro government and the Lula foreign policy, which will you know, become that of the government, have tried to maintain a sort of equidistance between Russia, the United States and China. They don't want to commit to one ally in what they regard as a new multipolar order. And it's interesting to actually read the words of Celso Amorim on this very issue. So we can't afford to do so. We're not strong enough. We can't be gobbled up by the you know one dominant alliance over the others. We will need uh, economic trade ties with China. We will need diplomatic and economic ties with Russia. We will need to respect the United States and all its economic power. But we don't want to be in one boat alone. And as a result, the way to defend ourselves against being tied only to one of those powers is through a much stronger united region. So we'll talk in a moment about the region more broadly. But can we just move First, on to the other left-wing politician that's taken power recently, and that's Gustavo Petro. Renata, last time you were on the podcast was just ahead of the vote that Petro won. Since then, he's come to power and he talks about total peace in Colombia, by which he seems to mean talks with the remaining guerrilla groups, so groups that were not part of the deal that the Colombian government signed with the FARC the main guerrilla group in 2016. So that's largely the National Liberation Army, the ELN. He's even floated the idea of talks with drug trafficking organisations that are sort of competing violently across the countryside. He talks about rural reform, redistribution of land and other ways to sort of end this terrible violence in the countryside. He talks about an end to coca fumigation, even of decriminalising drugs. So what, he's been in power now for almost three months. What's he done so far? Yeah, well, Petro came with a lot of ambitions. And I think his speech at the General Assembly back in September, the UN sort of lined them up, particularly putting a reframing on the dragon wars and uh, the environment as uh, the core center of how he's going to engage with the world. Um, I think Petro has been very smart in the way in which he has dealt with the internal political opposition, particularly from elites and other political parties, because a big part of his agenda is also a redistribution agenda and thinking about the poor. And in that way, he echoes Lula's discourse quite a bit. He has, and particularly because he's very concerned about the rural areas in Colombia, he has just signed an agreement with Fedegan, which is the biggest cattle ranchers association and really sort of the core of the right wing economic sector in Colombia to purchase an incredible amount of land to be redistributed from uh, these private um, individuals. Um, that has been uh, very criticized by some people in the left who argue that some of these lands were acquired in not legal ways and the government should be expropriating. But by actually purchasing the lands, he has neutralized perhaps his biggest enemy um, in in one of the biggest policy areas that he has. The other big issue is what you just said, his plan to have a total peace, which means in reality engaging with negotiations with not only the remaining uh, guerrilla, which is the ELN and the FARC dissidences, if we can qualify them as guerrillas, but also with criminal organizations that have come and fought for territory that the FARC used to control and where the state is not dominant. So what he's proposing in real terms is negotiating with criminal groups. How and when this will happen and uh, is this is really going to be the issue that um, 
is going to be discussed in Colombia for the next year for sure. This is go this is going to be an incredibly contentious uh, proposition that we actually have negotiations with criminal groups. But his efforts and his whole intention is to lower the levels of violence that have been raising increasingly since the signing of the peace agreement with the FARC. There's going to be a lot of opposition from the traditional right-wing sectors, but I think uh, Petro so far has shown to be quite uh, a very astute politician, and he has kept um, Alvaro Uribe, the ex-president, who's very much the moral guidance of the opposition, at his side. He's meeting with him regularly. And Renata Alvaro Uribe, he's the sort of main establishment right-wing politician. He led opposition to the peace deal with the FARC and so deeply opposed to a lot of what Petro stands for. How has Petro managed to forge and sustain that relationship? And actually, how has Uribe managed to do that? Well, you know, in the end, politics are politics. And so people want to have their slice of their cake. And I think both sides have understood that having a conversation at this early stage is productive for everyone. I think for Uribe, probably being in contact with Petro is also checking him, you know, making sure he doesn't go too far out. And I think for Petro, talking to Uribe is clearly a very good strategy in the sense that he's quelling opposition in Congress. This is all very fragile, though, Richard, and we're seeing a coalition that could break at any point. And uh, once we're seeing people on the ground having conversations with Clan del Golfo and other serious narco-trafficking groups, I think Colombia is going to have quite a soul-searching moment to see if this is something that the country wants to do. If I just may add to that, what's absolutely fascinating about Petro and, and, and government and, in fact, its great strength and its potential weakness, but also something which makes it really quite distinctive is it's got, I mean, Petrus had, when he did his election campaign and was speaking to the plazas and still in his de declarations to the United Nations and elsewhere, he's got these huge historical ambitions. I mean, changing Colombia, absolutely root and branch, making it a, a country which overcomes 60, 70 years of chronic conflict. You could actually go, say, conflict going back to its very independence at the start of the 19th century, uh, making it a fair and more egalitarian country when it's the second most unequal country in Latin America after Brazil, actually. So all of these, but at the same time, he's doing it in a, a hardcore, realistic fashion. So instead of as you might expect from certain left-wing leaders in the past in Latin America, making these huge ambitious moves without really understanding how to achieve them on, on, on a day-by-day, step-by-step level. He actually is understanding who his enemies are, who the blockages are, where the spoilers are, and how to deal them. As Renata has mentioned, the deal with, the, in many ways, the most right-wing movement, social economic movement in the whole of, of, of Colombia, which is the the Cattle Ranchers Association, which is extraordinary. And again, referring to the issue of economic and finance policy, having one of the most respected economists in the whole of Latin America as his finance minister, pioneering a tax reform, the brunt of which is going to be paid for by the richest parts of society. These are all intelligent strategic moves. You get the feeling with Petro that he's been dwelling and thinking about how he was going to govern Colombia for a very long time. But as Renata said, of course, any one of these different fronts he's operating on could weaken, could fall apart, and that would cause huge problems for such an ambitious project. And if you look at his platform, I mean, there's plenty there. She said he's pursued it in a very pragmatic way, but there's plenty there. 
if there are indeed, Renas, as you say, potentially talks with the Clan del Golfo, the, the big drug trafficking organization, Pedro himself talking about decriminalizing drugs, very resistance to the war on drugs, I mean, very used very fiery rhetoric in the UN General Assembly about the war on drugs. You know, there's plenty there that in principle, uh, Washington might not like. And yet, Secretary of State uh, Tony Blinken visited Bogota, met Petro uh, just recently. So far, the Biden administration has been pretty pragmatic too. Absolutely. I think it's been extremely clear that the U.S. is not willing to lose Colombia as its closest ally. And they have sent all of the messages by sending high-level functionaries, really being cooperative with Petro's agenda. I think they understand that they have to be in good terms with Petro. Obviously, we'll have to see when it comes to, you know, how things move, in particular on the drug on wars, which is perhaps the biggest source of contention that there's going to be. Petro is looking to stop fumigations and forced eradication completely, which is something that historically the U.S. has always pressed on Colombia to do. Under the Trump administration, the pressure was enormous to show that um, hectares of coca grown uh, were being reduced. And actually, uh, last week, the U.N. announced Colombia has the highest amount of hectares of coca grown ever in history. So Petro is coming um, to this issue from a very pragmatical position, which is, look, this is not working. You know, the dragon wars is just not working. Coca keeps being grown. People get being killed. Our country is being destroyed. You people are still using. So we need to rethink this. There is a very strong um, anti-drug rhetoric still within the United States government and the establishment that is not going to be so easy to... Uh, be like, okay, we're going to stop fumigation. Um, a lot of the military aid that Colombia receives from the U.S. has been conditioned to certain performances on drugs. So this is going to be the core of the issue, how much the U.S. is willing to shift focus, as Petro is suggesting, from coca growers into the people that are trafficking, um, particularly laundering money in the U.S., which is something that he has highlighted as um, an area where the U.S. has done very, very little in comparison with the harassment against the people growing the coca. Um, this is going to be very difficult because it goes to the core of a programmatic idea that the U.S. has very strong feelings about. Uh, and even though the Biden administration is sending signals that they're willing to contemplate it, I can see how there's going to be a lot of opposition, particularly from Republican sectors. And so the other big change that Pedro has brought about is really this sort of sea change in relations between Colombia and its neighbor, Venezuela. So Pedro has restored diplomatic relations with Venezuela. And he's done that at a time when Lula's coming to power in Brazil. Lula, when he last held power, you know, I don't think he's been blind to the flaws of the Chavistas, the Chavez government, and then the Maduro government. But traditionally, he has had okay relations with Caracas, kept relations open. So you have these two new governments in Venezuela's biggest neighbors, which have very different relations with, with Caracas than their predecessors. And this comes at a time when the international regional approach to the conflict over the past few years, which has basically entailed not recognizing Nicolas Maduro as president, recognizing instead opposition leader Juan Guaido as the legitimate president. This strategy adopted by many countries in the region, spearheaded by the US, supported by Europe, that strategy has, has sort of clearly run its course. It's, it's failed. Maduro's still in power. And even opposition politicians 
other capitals around the world withdrawing their support for Guaido. So do the sort of changes in, in the region coming at this time open a door for a new approach in Venezuela, a sort of new diplomatic track, new ways of potentially pressuring both the government and the opposition to get back to the table? I mean, is that what Petro is pushing for? I mean, that's very much uh, Petro's idea, although that's something which is not his, you know, his immediate priority. I think there was recognition amongst all the candidates in the Colombian elections that the, the policy towards Venezuela had failed. Ivan Duque, the former president of Colombia, invested a lot of energy and resources in the effort to topple Maduro in 2019. But that never happened. I mean, Maduro was weakened. The sanctions hit Venezuela massively. Uh, the humanitarian crisis has got worse over the last few years. There are now close to 7 million Venezuelans, migrants who've, who've left the country in, in recent years. But Maduro remains in power. And this is representative of the failure of the strategy. Petro made it very clear in his campaign that he would restore relations with Venezuela, and he did so immediately. He's doing so first and foremost for his own internal reasons, though. This is not done out of the, the warmth of his heart. This is about security on the border with, with Venezuela, with 2,200 kilometers, with some of the worst episodes of violence uh, of recent years, a, a growth of the number of armed groups, the highest concentration of coca crops in the world, uh, just sitting on the border with Venezuela in Catatumbo. We have all the migrants, obviously, of all those 7 million migrants I mentioned, 2.5 million are in Colombia with the vast majority living in poverty, working in the informal economy, very difficult situations. And of course, many of them are unable to return to Venezuela because of the border, which has been closed and the difficulty of, of returning of any sort of affordable transport back into Venezuela. Um, and then, of course, total peace, total peace. Petro's landmark uh, insignia policy depends on negotiations with the ELN with the National Liberation Army, which has become in recent years a guerrilla present in Colombia, where it was born, of course, and Venezuela, where it has grown uh, in cahoots with local security forces and authorities around the border and also deeper into the country. So given the ELN's presence in Venezuela, it's impossible to have future peace talks with the group in Colombia without at least the cooperation and consent of the Maduro government. For all those reasons, Petro's behaved very pragmatically, but he's also aware, uh, and I think this was clear when he had his meeting in Caracas with Maduro this week, the first meeting between the two as presidents, he's aware that he needs to start pushing Venezuela towards some form of settlement. Now, there's been lots of talk in recent weeks that the government and opposition of Venezuela are going to return to negotiations in Mexico, negotiations which will hinge on the question of the conditions for the presidential elections in 2024, uh, restoration of political liberties, a restoration of the possibility of the opposition to, to campaign and to ensure that the electoral system is strong and fair. This is something which I believe that Petro is aware of. He himself is trying to gently push Maduro towards greater respect for human rights. It's extremely difficult. Maduro and senior officials face a probe from the International Criminal Court, which is ongoing and could actually intensify in the coming months. And in that respect, they may be un unwilling to 
write checks which they can't uh, afford in terms of, of honouring uh, obligations and human rights. So for all those reasons, it's difficult for the Maduro government. But Petro is trying to push gently in that direction. But of course, firstly, he wants his priorities in peace, security, the economics, the border to be respected. And Richard, it's interesting to know that actually Maduro and Petro themselves don't have a great relationship. Maduro, we know, fairly much dislikes Petro because in the past, Petro has spoken against him publicly and has criticized the administration. And Maduro, as easy as he can disregard the criticisms that come from the right, you know, it clearly hurts a lot when it's another leftist leader that that speaks against him. So the relationship between the two of them is not great. It has been interesting to see that Petro sent Armando Benedetti, this very uh, exuberant politician, uh, to be the um, Colombian ambassador in Caracas. And uh, Benedetti has been, like, let's say, overcompensating for the lack of love. And when he first arrived to Caracas, he went and met with everybody. And there was a lot of hugs and kissing that uh, observers were like, well, do we need to be this enthusiastic about the Maduro administration, right? Like, it's good that we establish relationships, but do we need to fall into this like complete love affair immediately? There has been rumors that Colombia might withdraw its position uh, supporting the case in the International uh, Criminal Court. So um, I think they're trying to find the rhythm right in which um, in which that works. It is important to know though that when Maduro was um, talking with Petro this week, Petro actually said to Maduro that he wanted him to come back to the OAS human rights system, which uh, Venezuela withdrew from in 2013. Um, and there were some rumors that that was going to be a fait accompli after the meeting. That was not the case in the joint declaration. Essentially, Maduro was like, oh, we're, we're going to think about it. But clearly, Petro is also pressing him to come back into the most institutional fold. And perhaps, Richard, that is sort of what distinguishes this new crop of leftist um, leaders that we're seeing in Latin America, people like Boric, people like Petro, probably Lula, that they're much more aware of the benefits of working within the institutional democratic frameworks, both within their countries and in the regional space, than people like Ortega, for example, which is completely uh, outside of any constitutional mandates, and he's just essentially behaving like an authoritarian, leader of whatever um, ideological perspective. It's an interesting relationship between Maduro and the other left-wing rulers because Petro was very close to Chavez. When Chavez came to power, they had they had you know they had a, a strong friendship which fell apart a little bit because Petro has always been a little bit critical. During the Maduro, the worst years of the Maduro government, Petro was quite outspoken and that alienated Chavistas a lot. They're, they the Chavistas don't like other left-wing rulers stealing their fire and stealing their leadership. And this is, of course, what, you know, Renata's right. You, you might start to see a little battle between Petro, Boric, Lula, Maduro even, AMLO in Mexico. Who's going to be the leader of the Latin American left? Well, none of them could do it on their own. But I think they're all going to try and find their own particular, you know, marker, their own, their, their own identity and, uh, and I suppose at the moment you could say that, that Petro is, is leading the charge because he's so very active, but I'm not sure Maduro is going, to, is going to like that too much. So if we look back a couple of years, Latin America was really polarised between so-called left-wing governments, but these at the time, most of them were the sort of Maduro, Ortega sort of 
authoritarian left that we talked about. Them on the one hand, and governments sort of on the right, centre-right on the other hand. Now that regional polarisation has diminished as more left, centre-left leaders have come to power. So what does that mean for sort of regional politics? I think what you, you, you saw, Richard, of course, you had a lot of left-wing governments in power before 2015, and they built a lot of regional institutions. They built the UNASUR, uh, for example, the Union of South American uh, Nations. There was a lot of, of regional activity, and uh, almost frenetically so. And you could see some really strong interventions by the region. I mentioned Haiti. What about the, the, the mediation in Bolivia in 2008 to prevent a, a, a conflict there? Uh, the growth of Mercosur, of course, was an important part of that era. But then, then the right came in. I mean, we forget that from 2015 to 2018, you had a big rise of the right and the center right in, you know, in Brazil, in Chile, in Argentina, of course, in Colombia. Uh, and, and during, and during that time, those former regional institutions built by the left fell apart. I mean, UNASUR just disintegrated as a result. And the right wing governments tried and failed to build their own regional institutions. And now we have the left back, uh, in this, this churn, which we're seeing throughout Latin America as incumbents are thrown out of power and, and new governments come in. And in this case, the left is, is winning. But what the left can't do, is is return to that model of the past where they build institutions uh, uh, based around governments that basically see eye to eye politically. Now, that doesn't work. These are not sustainable. They don't last. There needs to be really serious thinking about a, a new consolidation of, of regional politics and regional power based around governments able to understand one another, even if they do disagree. And it's good that the, the new left-wing governments, as you mentioned, they, uh, they seem to be a little bit more moderate, a little bit more uh, pragmatic, less demagogic in some ways. Yes, of course, you've got Venezuela with a hardcore, uh, diehard left-wing government, even worse in Nicaragua. But if if you can bring Venezuela towards a political settlement, then effectively on mainland Latin America, you'll be left with one government which stands out as an anti-democratic, authoritarian hardcore anti-imperialist regime which is that of, of Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua and Cuba I leave to one side because I think that's a, that's a special case but if that's the case and I think you could start to see left-wing governments understand that what they need is not to get back to the state in which Latin America found itself when the COVID pandemic began with extremely weak institutions ruptured and divided by Venezuela governments unable to talk to one another that cannot happen. And I think this is something which the politicians, the new generation of politicians understand very well. So maybe then one last question, and this is sort of a broader question, but I'd like to ask you both how you see it playing out in Latin America. There's no doubt that right-wing populism, populism more broadly, but especially right-wing populism is a sort of feature of politics in much of the world at the moment. I mean, Bolsonaro is really a, a sort of shining example, but you could also look at the enduring power of Trump in the US, his hold over the Republican Party. You can look at the advance of the national rally in France, Marine Le Pen, even though she hasn't yet held power, you could look at the new government in Italy. I guess the question is sort of how strong is that trend? Is the populist right as a political force? And one argument might be that it's sort of inexorable, that sure, Lula's in power now, but like Biden or Macron, you know, the hard right is going to follow, that the force is underpinning the populist right which you described so well in Brazil, so whether economic or cultural, that they're strong and that once 
sort of they're entrenched in power, they may even bend rules to hold on to it. That might be one argument. Another argument would be that actually more centrist, usually centre-left, but more centrist politicians in general can rally against populism, that actually right-wing populism has sort of peaked as a force, even if it's not yet completely spent. That might be another way to look at it. I guess a third way to look at it, and I think probably more likely given where things are now, but I'm interested in what you think in Latin America, is that we're going to be in a period where the pendulum is sort of swinging back and, and, and forth, that we'll continue to see right-wing populists come to power on a fairly regular basis. So far, they've been quite inept in office. There's then this sort of backlash. Others, more traditional politicians, sometimes leftists, come to power. But they also struggle with difficult macroeconomic problems. And again, that opens the door to populists. So you have these swings back and forth. I mean, how do you see that over the years ahead in Latin America? It's clear Latin America has done that swing between the left and the right for a few decades now. So that is not a surprise. Um, I think what we're seeing, though, is left governments that are responding to economic needs right now, very much pushed by COVID and by the general state of the economy worldwide and right wing governments that are really responding to identity politics and what they see as a progressive agenda that is going against the very traditionalist core of the beliefs in the population. It's indisputable that in most of these countries where the left has won, it has been incredibly divided. They have won by very small margins, and there is going to be a growing opposition to these leftist administrations that are coming from these more conservative sectors. So I think this is going to be the next few years, a search for the soul of what governments are going to be responding to, either the economic needs and in particularly the question of poverty and inequality, which remains the question um, in, in Latin America, which is obviously very closely linked with violence, because uh, in uh, even from obviously the, the guerrilla groups in Colombia, but the Maras and the gangs in Central America, those are all responses to very unequal economic systems that give large swaps of the population absolutely no legal paths to prosperity. Meanwhile, we have these other more populist right-wing sectors that are responding to the advancement of gay rights, of feminism, of abortion rights, of more secular societies that are feeling threatened in what they had always seen was their spaces of power. So I think that's going to be the battle between um, those two groups in Latin America uh, and I think it's very likely that we're going to be swing, seeing swings from, from one sector to the other in the coming years. I, I absolutely agree. I, I don't think the right is over by any stretch. It, it, these governments are facing really difficult economic situations. We know that the growth of the region is 1.6% or so expected next year. That's not enough to satisfy all the pent-up needs of all the people and the suffering middle classes and the poor without food on their table and the unemployed or the informally employed. This, it's not, that can't be done. The left wing governments won't be able to achieve all their goals. And, and the right wing and the right, which has moved from the sort of technocratic managerial free market to this more radical rebellious, uh, uh, position of Bolsonaro, it's going to rise at, for a start. Look at the Argentine elections next year. We could be seeing the first radical libertarian president in in Latin America, Javier Millet, who's doing very well in the polls at the moment. We could be seeing the Peru, the return of the right in Peru. It's not not at all impossible. So I don't think 
it's over at all. The left will suffer in the next few years. Uh, uh, The question is, how much can it get done before it is dumped out of power? And what will be the nature of the opposition which takes its place? And that is something which we'll be looking at. We will be following very closely. Ivan, Renata, thanks, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much, Richard. Take care. All the best. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Latin America and everywhere else we cover on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly, atwood at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions or suggestions, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Tell your friends and colleagues about us. We're a day late this week. I know. Sorry about that. We'll be back on Friday, I hope, next week. And we will have that episode that I promised, I think, a couple of weeks ago on Ethiopia. Thankfully and hopefully, it'll be a slightly more upbeat episode than the one we had planned because there has been this secession of hostilities between Ethiopian government and Tigrayan leaders. Still a long way to go, but definitely in a better place than it was a couple of weeks ago. So I very much hope that you'll join us again next week for that. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.